You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. So if you please stand with me out of reverence for this being God's Word, we'll start in Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25, and after each of these readings, I'm going to say this is the Word of the Lord, out of recognition of this being God's own words. If you please respond by saying, thanks be to God. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build another and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or build, bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now if you turn with me to Luke 24, I'm going to read the very end book of Luke. Luke 24, starting in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were still, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. When he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Father, we praise you. We glorify you. We honor you. You are merciful. You are kind. 
You are gracious. You did not leave us to wallow in death. You didn't leave us in slavery to sin. But rather you liberated us, you freed us, you washed us, you justified us. And by your spirit, you have already made us alive. Help us to marvel at these things, to be overjoyed by these things, and to worship Jesus in the light of these things. In your name we pray, amen. I want to begin this morning by reflecting a bit on my backyard. Um, We are within a week of moving from this backyard, and so I felt like it was a notable time to begin an Easter service by honoring that yard and all that is meant to us over these past several years. Our backyard is a yard of death. It cannot bring forth life unless you consider weeds life. Um, it, we have tried everything. We've planted seeds um, and the seeds die. We've planted uh, sod and the sod dies. We've planted flowers and the flowers die. Everything dies in our backyard except for this one stubborn tree. In our backyard is a tree that looks like it's been hacked to pieces. It appears as though it is just rotten to its core. And yet every single spring, green leaves appear on at least one side of it. The other side is decimated. Um, And every other fall or so, um, the most terrible looking apples imaginable appear on its branches and fill our yard, making it impossible to mow. This tree in the face of a yard filled with death defiantly holds forth life and its fruit. Um, There is no um, escaping it. Every year we think this is the year the tree is going to die. We've hacked at the thing. We've even thought about, hey, this is the year we're going to just cut the thing down. We'll cut off a bunch of branches. And then there it is. Um, Every spring, new green leaves and every couple of falls, there they are, really small, terrible-looking apples. This kind of defiance, this kind of defiant life, um, sprang to mind this morning as I thought about what does it mean to be a people who believe and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in a culture like ours? What does it mean to, to believe and to confess, to stand on those steps and to declare something that is absolutely crazy. I don't know if you know this. It is insanity. But to declare Christ is risen in the face of a culture that is so certain of death. Well, it's madness. Because all that that phrase means, all that is packed into that declaration, the declaration of the resurrection of Jesus, his victory over sin and death, all that that means and all that that carries with it it is absolute madness in a culture that is certain of death and in many ways is obsessed with and loves death. And yet we do it. In fact, we gather here every single Sunday like that stubborn tree with its stubborn apples holding forth the defiant joy, the defiant promise Christ is alive. 
that sin, no matter what you see, no matter what you saw on your Twitter timeline, no matter what you saw on the news, no matter what you see around you um, all the time, no matter what you find at work often in your own heart and life, in the face of all of that, we continue to stubbornly show up and confess and believe that Christ is risen. I think this is the heart of what the celebration of Easter is about for the church in this age. It's an act of beautiful dissidence, joyful defiance of death. It's dissident in that it holds for the glory, um, it holds forth the glory of God's life in the face of death in the face of, of, of death's tentacles, namely sin. It, it holds forth in the face of all of that, the confession, the belief, the joy that death has been overcome. And it holds forth the fact that Christ has freed us from slavery to death in the midst of a world that oftentimes appears to still be enslaved to it. It's beautiful in that its faith and its obedience is to the author of life. We are to embody the very life of God in the world. This isn't a defiance rooted in anger. It's not a defiance rooted in pride. It's not a defiance rooted in our own strength or kind of bowing up our own backs. It is a defiance that is rooted in faith. Faith that God has accomplished in the death and the resurrection of Jesus all we need for our salvation. Faith that that holds forth the promise that one day this whole world will be made new. You and me included. It is defiance rooted in hope. Hope that sin and death will not have the final say, but rather they have been defeated. And it is a defiance rooted in love. Most of all and above all, a love and a delight in God. The God who saves, the God who authors life. So that's where I want us to begin. And that's just to give away the whole sermon is exactly where we're going to end. In between, I'm going to preach Luke. We're going to talk about what this resurrection is and what it means, and we're going to do so from a slightly different angle. We're going to look first in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 um, gives us one example of many of the preaching of the apostles, um, and so I want us to see the place of the resurrection um, in the confession of the apostles, in the preaching of the apostles, um, what, what, what purpose does it serve as Jesus is declared in the first century? And then I want us to look briefly at Luke 24, see what's contained there in that resurrection, and then we'll come back to my first point. There's the whole outline. You got it? Got it. Okay. Acts chapter 3. Um, Acts chapter 3 is simply one example of a number of examples that we have in the book of Acts, and really not just the book of Acts, but throughout the New Testament, of the central place of the resurrection of Jesus in the teaching of the church, in the early teaching of the church. Um, one of the fascinating things about the resurrection as you walk through the book of Acts, um, I think a lot of time is spent by preachers, a lot of time has been spent by me um, as a preacher in my ministry, um, providing proofs of the resurrection. And I think that actually can be valuable. But what's fascinating to me is 
on the apostles provide no proof of the resurrection in the book of Acts. In fact, you won't find a proof for the resurrection anywhere except for 1 Corinthians 15. Rather, that the resurrection is something that's simply declared. It's declared with a kind of final authority. Um, this is what happened and we saw it. Um, and that just occurs everywhere in the book of Acts. Um, and it's a central kind of anchor point throughout the whole of the New Testament for, for how Christians are to live and to think about the Christian life and their life in this age and in this world. Um, preaching about the resurrection, teaching about the resurrection, you see it really everywhere in the book of Acts. Every time an apostle opens their mouth, they talk about Jesus being raised from the dead. Um, you see it also um, in, in the teaching of the letters of the New Testament. You see it in Romans, you see it in Colossians, you see it in Philippians, um, you see it in Revelation. Um, you see it kind of over and over again in the New Testament, and, and there's really kind of three big ideas anchored to the, 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 just the simple declaration of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, there, there's three teachings kind of anchored there. One, um, it, it's held up, you see this for example of this in Romans chapter one. Um, it's also uh, one of the key points in all of the apostles' sermons in the book of Acts is that the resurrection is the vindication that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. Um, and so uh, the apostles, as they preach about Jesus, as they talk about Jesus, um, the, the, the center point in all of their preaching um, is not first and foremost, what do we do? It's first and foremost, um, answering the question, who is Jesus? And as they answer that question, um, they, they confess that he is Lord, that he is God, that he is King. And the way that they give evidence of that is they declare that he was raised from the dead. And so that's the first kind of... Um, arena of teaching that is anchored to the resurrection. Second, you see this, um, say, in Romans chapter 8, that that the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus um, is uh, is tied together with a call for Christians to walk in a new life, a resurrection life. That the resurrection of Jesus becomes a kind of uh, um, evidence for, or the grounds for maybe, um, that it becomes the soil out of which a kind of faithful and obedient and joyful and hope-filled life is to grow. So you see, again, in those New Testament letters, a call to Christians that as we, as we consider how we're supposed to live in the world, we're to fix our attention on Jesus and the fact that he was raised from the dead, And then that becomes the soil out of which the the life that we're to live grows. And then tethered to that, you see this again in Romans chapter 8, is Christians, that the expectation for you and I in this life and in this world is that you and I will have trouble. Um, You'll face persecution. You'll be hated for believing and behaving the ways that the Bible instructs us to. People will not understand it, and when they do understand it, they won't like it very much. And that will lead to suffering, that will lead to persecution, that will lead to difficulty, and even death. And in the face of all of that, the call of the New Testament is that you would hold fast, that you would face those things with hope, and even, go with me a second, joy. And how do you do that? Well, The New Testament anchors that call to face suffering, to face difficulty, to face even persecution and death. He anchors that that call to resolution and resolve in the resurrection of Jesus. 
that Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore you can persevere and know that death doesn't have the final word so that anything that faithfulness would cost you in this life is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us and given to us. And so with those kind of ideas in the background, you come to Acts chapter three and you come to this remarkable time in the history of the church. Um, This is just after Pentecost. Um, Peter stood up and preached, really short sermon. Some of you might wish for that. Um, This morning, why can't, Peter could do it in about three minutes. Why can't you? Um, uh, He stood up and he preached and thousands came to believe in Jesus. It was amazing. I wish I could preach three minutes and thousands come to believe in Jesus. He stands up and he does it. And so um, the, the apostles are in Jerusalem. These guys who just a few weeks before were cowering and terrified and afraid are now standing up in Jerusalem, declaring what God has done in Jesus. And thousands are responding by believing in Jesus, being baptized in the name of Jesus um, and coming in to the church. And so um, that happens in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter three. Um, Peter and John are going to the temple um, the, the church is gathering in the temple courts day in and day out. Um, they're gathering, they're singing, they're praying. The apostles are teaching, um, kind of taking um, and showing how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, they're on their way to the temple and they heal a paralytic. When they heal the paralytic, everyone sees it because they know this guy because he asks them for money every single day. Um, and they are utterly astounded. And then Peter begins to preach. I want you to listen to what he says before we turn back to Luke. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The resurrection addresses one fundamental problem. We are a people obsessed and in love with death. Addicted to it. That may sound like nonsense to you, right? People die and people wail and are sad. The Bible holds out death not merely as the moment your heart stops beating. It holds forth death as all that drives us away from the author of life. It is all that corrupts and destroys life and all of the good things that God has given us in life. And what Peter preaches to this people could be preached 
to every single person on earth. Um, You rejected the author of life, instead choosing a murderer. Um, You rejected the holy and righteous one, instead choosing for yourself death and destruction. You rejected the author of life, killing him. But God raised him from the dead. Now, all of this fulfills God's plan. None of this was on accident. Peter's going to go on in this sermon to describe you did all of these things, but, but it was all according to God's plan. You're just doing what God wanted to have happened. You did it in your sin. You did it in your rebellion. You did it because you were enslaved to sin and death. Um, But God was driving all of it to keep all of his promises. With that in mind, I want us to look back at Luke chapter 24, at these three scenes that will explain to us that little phrase that Peter uses in his sermon when he says, but God raised him from the dead. Luke 24 is one of the lengthiest and most detailed descriptions of the resurrection of Jesus. John's is close. Luke 24 gives us three different scenes. We're not going to look at them with much detail, but I do want to summarize the three because it serves for us, again, the soil out of which the kind of life that I think God is calling us to and is offering those of you who are here who don't know Jesus, this is the kind of life on offer in the gospel. So there's three scenes in Luke 24. The first is verses 1 through 12. There you have um, a, a story that is told in all of the gospel accounts, the story of the women discovering the historical resurrection of Jesus. And the emphasis in these verses is on the, the, simply the historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, this is central to Christianity. We talked about this on Friday night with the crucifixion. Christianity is unlike every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world will give you a a set of ethics or morals. Every other religion in the world will give you um, maybe a set of of, of ceremonies or rituals. Um, What Christianity gives you before it gives you any of those other things is a confession about history. But what it means to be a Christian, at really its most basic level, means that we believe that something actually took place in the space-time universe. That, that if you went back in a time machine, you could watch it happen. You could touch it. You could see it. You could smell it. In other words, we don't simply believe a religious myth. We don't believe that something merely happened up in the heavenlies somewhere and we just have to believe it and somehow reflect that in this life. No, we actually confess and believe that Jesus Christ bodily came out of the grave outside of the city of Jerusalem at a particular time and a particular place and a particular moment in history. That these women actually went to the grave and when they went to the grave, they, they, Jesus' body really wasn't there. That, that an angel really spoke to them, like really spoke to them. It wasn't just a voice in their heads. They weren't just exhausted or stressed out or tired. 
But we confess and believe that Jesus actually died. His heart stopped beating. He was laid in an actual tomb. We believe that this moment that that actually took place in history is the center point in all of history. In other words, Christianity is at its root a confession about history, and particularly a confession that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has actually taken place. He wasn't merely spiritually raised from the dead. He wasn't just emotionally raised from the dead. He wasn't just raised in the memories of the disciples as they told stories. You cannot explain the life of the disciples, the history of the early church, apart from a firm and unshakable conviction that Jesus was alive. Verses 1 through 12 recount that story. It grounds it in imagery, imagery that, that, that tells us that God is remaking the world, imagery that echoes through um, with, with, with signs of new creation, signs of, of what it means for the sake of the world. But that is the fundamental point of verses 1 through 12. Second scene, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. You have two, two disciples walking to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. On this walk, they're sad. They're very, very sad because Jesus was killed. And they had hoped that Jesus was going to be the one to come and liberate Israel from Roman occupation, from slavery to Rome. And so these two disciples of Jesus find themselves walking with Jesus but unable to see Jesus. Here Luke confronts one of the fundamental problems throughout his gospel, which is you can be really, really close to Jesus and not see him. You can hear his teaching. You can can understand the whole of scripture in some sense. At least know what's there and miss completely what God is up to with Jesus. And so in this wonderful, ironic twist, two disciples of Jesus are walking on a road to Emmaus outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is walking with them. And they can't see him. I think it's a really smart guy. And then Jesus gives them a Bible study. And oh, to be in this Bible study. He takes the whole of the scriptures and he unfolds for them um, that this was exactly what God had always been talking about. And this is the central point of verses 13 to 35. Again, there's all kinds of of smaller points, of supporting points, of, uh, of implications that we can draw from these verses. But at the center of what these verses are about is essentially to say um, that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus was not some sort of deep Hail Mary pass by God. Um, he's trying to kind of pull the game together and pull something off. But rather, it is um, a declaration that Jesus Christ is, his, resurrect, his death and his resurrection is the plan that God intended from the very, very beginning. That these two disciples and many like them then and still many like them today have misunderstood the mission of God, the purpose of God, the promises of God. 
And that this Jesus coming out of the grave in the middle of history, um, uh, rather than all people being raised, or at least all of Israel, or all the righteous members of Israel being raised at the very end of the age, that this was in fact what all the prophets were speaking of. And you see here in Jesus the first fruits, as Paul will use the language later to describe. God's intention was to raise his son from the dead and that that coming of Jesus out of the grave was the first fruits of a harvest that will one day fill the earth. The resurrection of the son of God marks the promise that God will one day raise all of his children from the dead. This was the plan of God. This was the promise of God. In a land overrun with death, clinging to and hoping for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, as Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, I love the text because it just, the, all the translations try to smooth it over and make it, <laughs> make it tidier in English. But in Greek, he, he literally says, if anyone is in Christ, and then it's like he shouts, new creation resurrection those fruits first fruits are beginning to bear fruit like the small sprouts of grass around that stubborn tree start to come up start to see life filling where there was only only mud the last section section we just read verses 36 through 49 the emphasis here is on the nature of the resurrection. So you have the disciples, they see Jesus, he comes among them, um, and they are troubled. In fact, um, I I love verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, there, there was a kind of joy in that room that couldn't believe what they were seeing. There was a kind of marveling at what was in front of them. They could hardly fathom what was going on right in front of them. And so what does he do? What does Jesus do? Give me some broiled fish. It's not what I would have asked for. Like a cheeseburger, cheesecake. Give me a piece of broiled fish. What is the nature of this resurrection that is promised to us? It's been misunderstood for decades, particularly in America, and particularly in, in, in the modern evangelical church. We've, we've imagined the resurrection promised to us as a kind of, um, in some cases, extreme cases maybe, floating around on clouds, wearing white robes, playing harps, um, or maybe all playing electric guitars, um, and, and singing for a really long time. Um, a, a kind of disembodied resurrection so, so that the hope of the resurrection is that someday in some sort of spiritual way, um, in some sort of disembodied Gnostic way, we will be with God forever. And isn't that wonderful news? According to the New Testament, no, that's terrible news. That's not at all what God has promised you. And what we see in Jesus is the nature of the actual resurrection that is promised us. If Jesus is the first fruits, then the fruit that will follow, namely you and I being raised from the dead, is precisely this kind of fruit. Which is what? A resurrected body that can eat fish. That will eat fish. Even you, Carson, will eat fish. 
a resurrected body that, that, that will be physical, that will really be the conquering of death. Um, in the end, the promise of the resurrection is not that um, God will run and kind of, kind of this do this sort of end around, around death and say, ha ha, what I really meant for you is that you to live as a floating spirit forever. No, the answer to the resurrection is that death is no more. Your body will no longer be and is now even no longer enslaved to death. It has been conquered. And you and I, here's here's the thing. That resurrection, that first fruits has pushed forward into this moment. As men and women and children in the face of a world enslaved to and in love with death begin to bear the fruits of this resurrection. Not disembodied from what you'll do at lunch today. Not disembodied from the raising of your kids. Not disembodied from the business that you go about doing day in and day out. Whether it's in accounting or running a restaurant or, or, or running any other kind of business. No, we embody the, the reality that death no longer reigns. The fruits of the resurrection pushing back into our very lives. That we as a people, we eat fish as those who are no longer enslaved to death. We raise children as those who are no longer enslaved to death. We make love as those who are no longer enslaved to death. We love and honor our parents as those who are no longer enslaved death. We do accounting, even accounting, to those who are no longer slaved to death. The nature of the resurrection is not some disembodied spiritual life. It is life, a life where death does not have the final word. There's a reason why the New Testament authors speak of those who have died They simply say that they've fallen asleep. Life has broken in now. And it will one day be fuller and richer and bigger and better and deeper and thicker. But it has started now. Let me me show you and we'll be done. Flip back over to Acts chapter 3. Starting in verse 17, continuing Peter's sermon. He said, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Now look at this verse 20. I love this. That times of, I don't know what translation you have. Mine says refreshing. That word there is the the foundation word of resurrection. (laughs) You're not nearly excited enough. I'll give you another chance. 
Repent therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of resurrection may come from the presence of the Lord. We declare today that in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. We declare today in Jesus Christ that death no longer reigns. You do not have to be a slave to death any longer, doing its bidding in your sin and rebellion against God. Rather, we declare today that God has given birth to life. That this world, even now, is being overwhelmed by the very life of God. No matter what you see, or you think you see, or you think you hear on the news, in fact, God is building a world flooded with life and glory and beauty and goodness. For all you, for all you who loved death, for all you that would choose a murderer over the author of life himself, the call today is repent. Repent of your sin. Repent of your love and your obsession with death and sin. What our culture calls um, your independence, your autonomy. Um, you're kind of making yourself or your life, whatever you, know, you want. Forsake all of that and receive from God the times of resurrection. That your sins can be forgiven. Your, your sins, not only can they be forgiven, they can be washed from you completely. You, by the Spirit and by faith in Jesus Christ, can know the very resurrection life of our God. Let's pray and prepare for communion.